You're listening to Almost Diplomatic, DC-based podcast that discusses geopolitics, national security, a whole bunch of nonsense over beers. And as a disclaimer, the views and comments made during this episode are those of the participants and do not represent any entity that they volunteer with or are employed by. Enjoy! Hey everybody, welcome to Almost Diplomatic. I'm your host, Ryan Young, and joining me today is... Lex Cardone. Kevin. Okay. <laughs> and we're recording on May 18th, 2020. So, guys, uh, we're in, what, like, week eight or nine? I don't know. Of lockdown? Yeah. And um, I guess also week eight or nine of doing this remotely. Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, pretty much, because I think we're, are, we did it right. We actually, our last episode that we recorded in person was right before the lockdown. Um <laughs> accidentally not even on purpose it wasn't like oh we need to do this quick it was just like oh we're just we're meeting on this day because we you know we need to put something out tomorrow but uh yeah i mean it's kind of i mean there's starting to stuff starting to open up just not where we live like um we're in northern we're in uh arlington and dc and uh those places are still on lockdown for at least another two weeks mm-hmm. is it two weeks or is like what's the i don't know May 28th or 29th or whatever. Okay. So um, until they extend it, until they, yeah, until they probably extend it because things have gotten better. Yeah. Because um, like in other parts of Maryland and in Virginia, they're starting to kind of people can like start going to the stores, go to barber shops, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Mm. Kind of depends. Like some of the, some counties are, are being more stricter. Like like so like in Maryland, like PG County and Prince George's County and Montgomery are still in good full lockdown. Then Anne Arundel, uh, mm. where I'm from. They're they're doing like I think a softer approach. They're they're closer to, I think they're not letting people go get the, go to get their haircuts, but like they just go across the border into Calvert or something like that. <laughs> just spread the love that way. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what like, there's been comments like you know you gotta go across you just go like, the county you go across counties pretty easily in some places. It's not like okay I'm in this county I'm never leaving. I mean I would never go into like Northern Virginia because why the fuck would I go farther into Virginia? Right. Or, or dreams die um but uh i don't know it's been it's it's getting old but uh we had, had the most normal time ever like a week ago um lex and your uh you and your girlfriend came over you and hanine came over and uh we had drinks in my front yard then uh kevin came and joined us and like home improvement wilson like over the wall just the hat <laughs> yeah. just like you, I, I remember just looking up, and it was just like your your neck up, like your disembodied head just hovering over the br- the brick wall. Yeah. Spooky. Then we got wings. Then we got wings and Guinness from uh, Four Courts, and it was great. It was. Shout out to Four Courts. Yeah, we'll definitely. Four Courts. Yeah. Just an homage, an homage to the before four times. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was the most normal. Even though it was completely insane, it's still nuts. But um. Yeah, it was still, I don't know, it was the most normal I think I've experienced since uh, everything started. Well, hopefully that starts coming back soon and like how, I mean, in a way that is safe, obviously, because I feel yeah. like for a long time, I feel like a lot of people are going to have PTSD from this, like worrying about even people who don't have obsessive compulsive disorder or something are going to be like freaking out about being on a crowded bus or yeah. going and months and years. This is like, this is a very, I, I don't think the psychological impacts of even if you're like you know even if it's just minor just like it, the kind of impact that it's going to have on the culture and the this global zeitgeist that we have 
Yeah. Cool. I haven't had human contact in like so whatever eight or nine weeks, whatever it's been. So it's like yeah. it's weird to think about. I've seen I've started to see people more because like the yard stuff, which I figured I'd start doing. Uh, and that's I thought you were gonna say I started to see people more through your hallucinations. No, I just talk to myself a lot more. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's just good check. conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I usually think so. Yeah. Um, hey, great point. Oh my god, <laughs> you're so smart. I'm like, yeah. yes, yes, I am. This is great. It's like the Spider-Man. Uh, game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Arguing with myself, it's just like, yeah. I mean, we're getting there. Um, but anyway, so we're gonna talk about the Soviet Union or uh, Soviet war in Afghanistan uh, today. But uh, before we jump into that, what's everybody drinking? Well, I've go got, I've got go my, we, um, we kind of had a bit of a darty over the weekend, and um, it may have emptied our supplies a little faster <laughs> than, than the disaster rationing um, advice out there. So right now I'm drinking sparkling, like lime sparkling water, basically LaCroix, but better, and uh, Bacardi, which is like the last alcohol we have because it's gross <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not terrible i mean like this is a pretty weak drink so it's not it's not terrible but you know not great not terrible 3.6 rotkin yeah kev well i am teetotaling but i am drinking the all natural virtuals handcrafted black cherry soda and it is quite good a bit sweet but I, I am enjoying it immensely. So I picked it up at Mom's today. Mom's Organic Market. I was going to say, that sounds like a Mom's purchase. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Organic soda. Bougie kind It's good. No, and it was, wasn't terribly expensive. I figured I didn't want to be boring and just drink water. Fair. Yeah. So I'm, and, then I, and then I'm drinking um, a Polaroid, which is vodka, blue carousel, and Sprite. Now, the one I'm drinking right now is... Um, Mostly blue carousel because I was so sick of it. I wanted to in- finish it off, so I did. So uh, that's why the group the drink is extremely dark blue. It looks like antifreeze. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are we sure? Are we sure it's not antifreeze? I mean, it's the cure all, don't you know, for COVID. So I'm staying safe. What are you guys doing? Not drinking antifreeze is what you're not doing, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, <laughs> moving on from that. So Sophie Warren, Afghanistan. Um. Kevin, do you want to talk a little bit about what kind of happened in the '70s leading up to it? Because like it was, there was a lot of like crazy events that led to like getting what we got. Yeah, so I'm probably gonna screw up some of the names and may screw up some of the events. But uh, long story short, you have so the British Empire breaks up, right? And Afghanistan is more or less part of the British Empire. Um, not that you, far. Like, 1970 and on. 1970 and on. Okay. Okay. All right. So, because I mean, that is important, you know, it was part and the Pashtun were always kind of not really cool with being part of the British Empire. Uh, But let's go to the 70s. So you have a king of Afghanistan, this cobbled together country of multiple ethnicities, uh, particularly like Tajik and Uzbek in the north. Um, you also have small minority populations of like the Hazaras, which are Shia, Muslim, some Sikh, some Hindu, uh, but mostly uh, Sunni Muslim uh, and Pashtun in the south. So in the 70s, there is a coup that overthrows this king um, and establishes like a sort of liberalish state under uh, was it Dawood Khan. Yeah. It started uh, out as liberal, then it got a little, little authoritarian here and there. 
I think that's that's kind of a trend uh, in Afghanistan. But so yeah, you have this coup, and they start uh, implementing these reforms, which first they start going well, and then they start being heavy-handed. And as a result of this, uh, the communists. Uh, which had a sizable presence, the Communist Party of Afghanistan, uh, which consisted of two different factions, I don't want to go too in-depth into that, uh, lead a coup that overthrows Daoud Khan, kills him and his family, and establish uh, the P- Democratic People's Republic of Afghanistan. Or maybe it's the Democratic <laughs> Republic of Afghanistan. It doesn't matter. It's either Democratic nor maybe sort of a communist republic. Um, so yeah, the Communist Party comes to power uh, in the 70s, in another coup, and they begin implementing communist reform. Obviously, all of this has to be prefaced with uh, they're very tied into like the Afghan existence. So they're they are communist, but they're trying to balance between like the very tribal, fractious nature of Afghan. And they didn't do a good job. Right, right. they're no, trying to they're trying to de-emphasize the anti-religious nature that is inherent with communism. Right? They, was there was there some sort of balance with Islam, or was it like no? I, I, death I think. Barracks? Well, they they knew that they couldn't just overnight overthrow the religious establishment, but it, it's very clear that a lot of the the leadership of the Communist Party was very uh, did not like the. Um, the religious ass. I mean, they were they were atheists, and they yeah, and they're they, also fearful of Iran, right, right on the border. The revolution. Yeah, just I happened. mean that so. that yeah that happened like pretty late in the game there, but like oh. right right before the or right after the coup, um, and that was actually bigger bigger influence with the Soviet inter- intervention, um, yeah, which came a little bit later. But so yeah, essentially you have I don't want to go too in depth, but you have different communist factions, uh all seeking, you know, controlling parts of the country, controlling the military, because the military uh, was strongly influenced by the communists. Um, and so they have, they control a lot of the, the military there, but they're fighting insurgents and different elements that did oppose their rule. And so very much like happens later, Afghanistan is very difficult to govern. It's mountainous terrain, very different, uh, very fractious. And so they didn't control most of the, or they didn't control large parts of the country. They control most of the urban areas and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, which you know that happens all the way to the present, or it's it's very difficult yeah. to project power in Afghanistan. I mean, yeah, I mean the, the the communist government was really trying to push like you know progressive stuff, like stuff that most people would be, oh, it's not that bad, but like it was just too forced and too aggressive in like trying to get people to change in the rural areas, and that kind of led to a major backlash from those people. It did. It did. And uh, beyond that, so there were the two factions in the party uh, that rivaled each other in the Communist Party. Um, one of them was head, headed by the president, Tar- I think it was Taraki. And the vice president, uh, was Amin, um, was plotting against him and ultimately led another coup that overthrew and killed Taraki. Um and the so Soviets, it's, it's it's like three coups in about six years. Yeah, and this was this was kind of like a a over this was like an internal party issue, but also you know overthrowing <laughs> the country again. Not not, not um, a coup. It's just it's inter, it's internal reorganization. Well, yeah, he yeah. and I mean, I mean, <laughs> purged purged a lot of the <laughs> elements of the other end of the party that uh, opposed him. 
And it's it's very interesting Actually, how this plays out. As is tradition. The Soviet Union is kind of sitting there like they didn't have they didn't really play a role in the communist revolution itself. I think it almost took them by surprise. Obviously, they had ties with the party. They're like, um, oh, this might be good. Yeah. Hopefully. And so and they obviously wanted to support, you know, a communist Afghanistan. But they also found themselves, you know, kind of the same to the way uh, like the U.S., you know, finds itself in a lot of these situations. It's it's less of a, oh, like the the evil U.S. government or the evil, you know, Soviet Union is manipulating all of this behind the scenes and more of the Soviet Union being like, well, we kind of know what's going on, but like we're kind of yeah. in a weird place because there are these local domestic issues. That yeah. Events the, kind of the, the, you know, cart before the horse kind of thing. Events kind of go along and then the superpowers jump in and are like, well, we'll, uh, we'll back this horse. We'll back that horse. But to think yeah. of them, they're not so much manipulating things behind the scenes as much as the popular imagination believes. Yeah, they just they they're they, 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 they heated. Yeah, they there's heated, a lot more exactly. local, There's a lot well, more local dynamics at play and yeah. local agency where he's thrown under the bus. Well, because like I know there's probably something you would have gone into if you went to your uh, your 30 minute coverage of uh, the history of Afghanistan, Kevin. But uh, <laughs> is um you know how the the central role that the Afghanistan is kind of the center of eight in that center of that part of Asia, and like it was kind of like always this route. It was a great area of empires for because like, everyone was like, "Oh, this is like the best way to get through every area." So, yeah. so that's kind of why they're like, "Oh, it's been served. Afghanistan's been served up on a platter for us. It's a communist government now. We didn't have to do anything. This is wonderful." There's oh, a shit. oh shit, they're losing. They realized Suck. how incompetent they were. Yeah, <laughs> like we need that. We need to make sure like communism can't fail because it makes us look bad. Sort of. Um, it obviously they wanted to prop up the communist regime in Afghanistan, but also they kind of found themselves. I mean, they more or less they saw that. So Taraki's killed by Amin, and Amin takes power, and the Soviets don't like him. Mind you, there's a lot of miscommunication here. Uh, the Politburo was a bunch of old geezers in the Soviet Union. Brezhnev was literally like. Getting close to his deathbed. He lasted a little bit longer, but this guy, like, was an old geriatric. Like, he had to have his speeches read for him. Like, it was kind of a joke, like, almost, that he, like, everyone was kind of, all, all everyone around him was trying to ma manipulate him to be able to be his successor, but also competing against one another. And so that's, that ultimately encourages the Soviet Union after this Amin's coup uh, they don't like Amin. He start, he's purging a lot of the people that they liked. He's also kind of leading a violent, you know, violent suppression of opposition, both in the cities and out. Uh, and he's not doing a very good job. And so the Soviets decide, even though, mind you, Amin isn't like anti-Soviet. He's literally the whole time calling for the Soviets to send troops to support his guys. Um, yeah. The Soviets decide that they're going to take a different approach. They're going to knock this guy who's calling for them to come and help him off and replace him with someone they like a little bit more. Um, and so that's what they did. Uh, Casual. And, and these geriatric old men sitting in the Politburo uh, convince, you know, Braindead Brezhnev to sign off on on the, the invasion. And so they, they actually, because Amin had been sold, like, do we, do we want to get right into the intervention or? Yeah, sure. I mean, do we want to do we do want to discuss what we, whether it's invasion or intervention or police action? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, because that was one of the big debates at the time, right? It's like, is I mean, the UN recognized whatever you want, whatever that means these days. But like the recognized government of Afghanistan is asking for the, the Soviets to send in troops. Um, but backwards, there, there, bit, was just some fu- there was, just there some was a different lines. government until Spetsnaz just attacked the presidential palace and removed the previous government. So that, that kind of gets lost in the weeds in the debates a little bit. But <laughs> well, the, the Soviets essentially told him Ian, that they were going to come in and help him, or at least he thought that because they, it was clear that the Soviet military was building up and starting to send in more guys. And then they, you know, boom, gotcha. We actually are going to kill you and overthrow you and replace you. And it's, it was really stupid. It, it, it just sounds really stupid. <laughs> like, so what happened was the, the, I think it's the KGB, um, the KGB unit military special for or Spetsnaz guys that rolled up to the presidential compound where Amin was staying. Like these guys there were like, oh, the Soviets, like they're here to come hang out with us. And like uh, literally like the Soviets started opening fire. Who's and bringing the vodka? Have, yeah, these guys have no, <laughs> no idea what the fuck no is comrade. going on. Because they, no, they, they'd actually been drinking like the, like the Soviet ambassador and some of these other guys had Checks been out. drinking with like Amin and like other guys like days Checks before. Um, and but they were like, we don't like this guy. We need to replace him. And so they send in the Spetsnats. They kill him and a bunch of other people. And if then he they dies, insult- he dies. Another little little anecdote is because they knew that kind of some of the Soviet military unit or not Soviet, the Afghan military units were pro Amin or like were backed by or bat- would have backed him. One of the cool, one of the funny little things they did is they convinced them. Because they were so trusting of the Soviets, right? Convinced them that they needed to change the gasoline out or the diesel out of their tanks to like prepare them for like the cold of the winter, and that way none of the tanks would work. And so these guys couldn't like mobilize their tanks to fight the Soviets. So it's like clever little little deception there. Um, so yeah, the Soviets find themselves uh, basically in control of this country and sending a lot of troops in there and. Uh, the already nascent insurgency spikes at this point. So it was an invasor dimension. Yeah. A police oh. action. Police action. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what label you put on it. What what happened was, um, you know, the U- regime change. Swift's regi- regime change. Yeah. The Soviets in charge of all the communication hubs, the urban centers, the airports. Um, uh, anything, anything, yeah, anything that you know matters when you think of modern statecraft. But it drove the insurgency into the hills, which proved to be impossible to eradicate. Yeah, yeah. They, go ahead, Kevin. Oh, I was just gonna say, like the not only that, but the Soviets very quickly, in an efforts to destroy the insurgency, fueled its explosion. There was. There's a lot of um, accounts of like Soviet forces going through certain areas on patrol early in the conflict. And then, you know, a year later, two years later, they couldn't go through those areas because they'd all get fucking killed because they'd, they'd done such a good job of just shooting everyone and pissing everyone off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the foreign invader thing is always a good, good rallying cry. Right. Yeah. And I'm guessing now. But that and like the Russians really went about some really. Uh, especially later in the war, like, you know, it's really aggressive things. They really, they really like depopulation. 
because uh, like you know he, their biggest issue they had was you know you can't find the insurgents so that's annoying but it's like oh well these villages we think they give them support so we're just going to start bombing the villages and destroying other stuff like that and kind of like and yeah. force people to flee Afghanistan like that's why the refugee issue became such a big problem yeah. at Pakistan which still is today mm-hmm. yeah so millions fled into Pakistan um, and a lot of and it fueled this rising insurgency you know people like uh, famous names like uh, what's his name Hekmatyar uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud Dude. um Jala, Jala bin Haqqani is who, what the elder Haqqani, one of these guys, yeah. you know, all yeah. of these, all it's these a very names, g- giant family, <laughs> all of these names that continue to like pop up, uh, as being a pain in the ass for everyone <laughs> in Afghanistan, not, not to say anything about them, but you know, they're, they're heavyweights that got their cut, their chops in this war and later would become very important figures in so high high states, essentially so, so right? high state, yeah i mean sub warlords or terrorists depending on you yeah, ask. Yeah. yeah depends tomato tomato yeah so with depopulation and that kind of stuff that act they know bombing villages you know you know high sites 2020 but like was that a good idea or was that just something because that makes sense like hey we deny them safe haven or support and maybe they'll they'll start to take losses sooner they won't be able to operate as efficiently well, that, that that makes me think of something that, I mean, the depopulation strategy that Bashar al-Assad is using in Syria. Um, yeah. Like, you take out the civilian infrastructure and you force mass... Um, you're basically creating a situation where, you know, demographic changes are being enforced within months and weeks. So, maybe, I mean, there, from a very clinical standpoint, this can work, but in a place like Afghanistan, is that, you know, w- was that ever a, a feasible strategy as inhumane and, you know, as it was? Yeah, I mean, ignoring all the, like, you know, the, the human factor, because it's, it's morally obviously wrong um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, oh, actually, every way, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Literally every way. It is yeah, if there's nothing good about it. Um, but, like, it, it reminds me, it makes me think, like, you know, U.S. troops burning villages in, the, in Vietnam. Yeah. Which is those wars get com- com- uh, compared a lot, right? Um, but, yeah, I think, I think it's in Vietnam. I mean, there were that was I. Um, I don't know, well, Kevin. Kevin, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seemed like the depopulation strategy in Afghanistan was more of a a core level, like that was a core strategy. Whereas local yeah. commanders kind of took it in Vietnam. You know, um, yeah. I mean, this there is a long history of this. Where you know, and not Soviets, uh, you see, you know, the U.S. depopulating areas in the mid in the West, you know, to yeah. defeat the Indian tribes. Yeah, uh, you see in the Malay emergency, the British doing the same thing with the ethnic Chinese um, in Malaya or Malaysia. No, it's not Malaysia. Um, then you also see this uh, in Vietnam. You know, just a couple years before this, with like the Strategic Hamlet program, uh, which was in large ultimately ended up being somewhat similar although a lot of the the afghan war was it was less of a like let's put people in a different place and it was more of a like oh there's a village over there let's shoot it up and and also the soviet troops had a problem where they would just steal shit and shoot random people um not that other armies and militaries in the past haven't done that but yeah it's like a it's like a pastime almost 
But it it also drives it allows you know recruitment and propaganda from these insurgents. Yeah, so so it's a it's a it's a long go it's an ongoing like counterinsurgency strategy for to a certain extent. You know, it's it's like it's proved fatal to the Russians, but like was it is it just that or was it other things or you know if there if because like say if they re, re, brought people to the urban centers or something like that instead of you know being like okay go flee into Pakistan. It might have been something different, or they're like, "Okay, we're gonna build you all in this area that we're, it's all protected by us, though." So, haha. It's tough because I mean, when you look at Afghanistan, you know, the U.S. Yeah. had trouble two, you know, three decades later uh, because it's just such a difficult. It's difficult to maintain command and control, particularly up in the mountains uh, there. So, like the Soviets, what they would do is, you know, they relied heavily on these armored. Uh, uh, mobile armored, not mo- mobile infantry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, live forever. Live forever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it, um, they relied on these armored column tactics that would send the armored columns and then dismount troops in different areas, take control, uh, and move through. And particularly driving through the mountains, an armored column would just get wrecked by ATGM fire, small arm fire, recoilless rifles, um, mines. Yeah, I mean, you're essentially a sitting duck and you can get hit from all sides of the mountain and the Soviets, you know, you couldn't even see where you're getting shot at. Um, and the U.S. had problems with this, you know, in Afghanistan later, like in like 2001, 2002, uh, and so on and so forth. But it's, yeah, it's, the country hasn't changed. Yeah, definitely not. But I think, isn't that kind of how the Hind helicopter kind of got famous in this war? Yeah, yeah, so that was their most effective weapon, right? Arguably, for a while. Yeah. The hind and the hind was very effective because it would go, it would fly in and provide air cover, and it was able to hit these uh, insurgents who were sitting up in the mountains because it could spot their positions from overhead, or they could call in uh, small arms fire. Actually, another platform, lesser discussed, that got it uh, was both tested in active combat and employed was the. Su twenty five. It's the it was the Soviet the equivalent ground of, attack plane. Yeah, it was the Soviet yeah. uh, the Soviet equivalent of the um, A ten. Uh, although it's not well, it's not pound for pound the same, but it, it is a pretty impressive same, same use. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's um, but it, it was actually I was watching a YouTube video on this. Um, it was employed for the first time uh, in Checks Afghanistan. Out. Yeah, uh, <laughs> on brand. Anyway, I found a, that was, <laughs> I mean, because I mean, yeah. in Afghanistan, even to this day, the road networks aren't great. Yeah. So beyond the MI-28 um, and the MI-24, those were like the sexy attack helicopters that swooped in and did their thing. But a lot of the communication and logistics of the Soviet army at the time was driven by it was almost entirely helicopter borne. I mean, so once you. Later into the war, once the CIA starts supplying Stinger missiles, that basically cut. I mean, w- was that the nail in the coffin, do you think? Or was that kind of like a contributing you know, factor that was it was already kind of falling apart, their effort there? I think conventional wisdom has been that that played a major role. But also, like a lot of people revisiting have found that while it did have a huge impact, uh, at that point, the, the nail was already in the coffin. That was right. just... Well, that lowered it into the ground, I guess. Yeah. It was already, like, they were already having enough trouble getting blown up on highways and having their tanks and 
armored personnel carriers taken out and you well, know, that, were they using that, i mean was there a, i mean in the modern afghanistan conflict in iraq and everything we see a lot of like um you know roadside bombs suicide bombs was that kind of a thing or was it more ambushes and because it doesn't seem like um i mean the the tamil tigers at the time were doing suicide bombings but it they hadn't done the large scale um you know no i don't i don't think that what was their primary tactic just shooting up cars on roads like yeah i think they would use a lot like from what i understand and i'm not an expert in like the like the low tactical level uh, activities of the insurgents or the Soviets, but it was interesting to see um, like what they would do is a lot of these like small ambushes on Soviet armored columns. It, it was a lot of hit run tactics. Yeah. You, as far as I know, there really wasn't any like the suicide bombing and the I, I mean they would use mines, but like the IED suicide bombing thing was came yeah. later and wasn't didn't really play a major role in. Yeah. This I, 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 I saw some uh thank you uh i saw some stuff like i, I can't remember where i read it. it was like years ago i think um where it was influenced because of u.s policies they're like hey don't be doing suicide bombers suicide bombings that kind of stuff like we, we won't back if you're doing that okay. i mean it was some groups but like and then also the, then they're like oh don't use they're like oh then they use like a donkey bomb they tied a bunch of explosives to a donkey and let them go we're okay with that they're, 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 they're like they're like god damn it i mean i guess you got us on that but like yeah but it wasn't, it wasn't widespread like it has been on this war. Well, yeah. the other thing the Mujahideen would do is they would kidnap, like, if they captured Soviet soldiers, those guys were going to get tortured and in many cases, yeah. like, killed and, like, yeah, just, de- like, destroyed. Like, their bo- they'd be, like, butchered. Um, a, lot, and a, lot, then, a lot of revenge. They'd Very also... Tribal. Yeah. <laughs> they, they'd also uh, kidnap... Because Soviet soldiers, a lot of times, would go out in the markets, um... And so they would, there were, there were some instances where they would like claim there were brothels because obviously the Soviet troops wanted to gamble yeah. to the brothels. <laughs> uh, and they would lure these Soviet uh, enlisted guys, you know, the, well, they're all, well, uh, these Soviet, you know, privates and whatnot, and they'd just kill them and like throw their head over the gate or something. And not, they wouldn't do that literally, but like, yeah, that there, it, it was a lot of brutal, like asymmetrical tactics that the insurgents used. Um, yeah, but I guess I guess a lot of it was also like the fact that they were just there and sustained and lo- and in a lot of ways low level guerrilla action that kind of just kept the they they just maintained um you know it kind of did you know the Fabian tactics that George Washington they just just by surviving you're winning in a very yeah. like you're the, the Russians are pouring money into this dirt poor country um you're all you're getting for your your efforts are body bags back home, and by the time Gorbachev comes into power, everyone's already sick of it. And yeah. you, you know you have the you have the Russian mother, the Soviet one of the um, one of the only non governmental organizations in Russia that had any power during the Soviet era, especially the late the Brezhnev era, was the veterans, the mothers of veteran mothers of soldiers um, organization, and they were you know you piss them off, it's uh, it's yeah, it's not a good thing if you want if you want to maintain control. It was I think it was also a thing like you know the Soviet Union was not economically doing well at all at this no. point, and they kind of like and like and like also it was like you know look how strong the Red Army is not and it was kind of like a it was shaking the foundations in that way too. I think it was just right. fatigue. Well, 
honestly, like you were it. I think there are a lot, even though this the scenery was very different. Um, I think there are a lot of parallels to Vietnam in that it's a superpower that had prepared its military tactics to fight the other superpower in, you know, armored combat in Europe, uh, getting swamped down in, you know, for the U.S. versus Vietnam against an asymmetrical opponent that the U.S. had no idea how to deal with um, in a country the U.S. didn't know very well. And in, for the Soviet Union's case, you know, Afghanistan, this very difficult place to fight, um, fighting a you know, hard-nosed insurgency. And really not having an end goal either. I mean, they, they obviously wanted to stabilize the situation, but you ended up with, you know, they had several ceasefires because uh, uh, Masood and his guy, his uh, uh, Mujahideen, ended up controlling the, I think it was a Panjshir Valley. Uh, and the Soviets went through one time, got, kicked, got their ass kicked, but they managed to clear him out. And I'm doing air quotes there. Um, and then all of us, you know, at some point in the war, it became pretty much a no-go zone. And they had, I think, at least two or three ceasefires, at least, with him separately, uh, to because the Soviets didn't believe they could you know, hold that territory. Well, well also, a big thing, like, so where was the Afghan army in all this, besides not doing much? Uh, well, <laughs> no, I mean, they're kind of doing what they're war. doing right now. <laughs> oh. They, they were actually fighting alongside the Soviets, and they got a lot of experience doing it. The problem is they really couldn't... I mean, the, the internal politics in Afghanistan itself led to fracturing. Um, ultimately, uh, the guy they replaced, uh, the Soviets replaced uh, Amin with after they killed him, Carmel. They replaced him later with... Uh, oh, what's his name? He was, the, he was later killed by the Taliban. Uh, Naj... Nasrullah, yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah. matter. So, yeah, he, so got, you, he got hung in. Yes, terrible. these, these, like the internal, like there was very little unity even within the, the Afghan communist faction running the cities, yeah. um, and the Soviets and the Afghan troops would go together, fight, and then have to pull back. Actually, even after the Soviets withdrew. A lot of the Soviet military advisors wanted to stay with uh, what was left of the Afghan military fighting in Kandahar, who were being besieged by the insurgents. But the Soviet Union was like, nah, like, you can't really keep holding on to that. And ultimately, like, you know. But what's they, funny, the, Sov- or the Afghan army and by extension the Afghan state um, held on longer than the Soviet Union did. They, at once, the, I mean, once the the Soviet Union fell and the arms, because once, I mean, after they left in 89, the Russians continued to support the Afghan government, yeah. um, you know, non-interventionally and all that. But like, it's funny, they held on longer than the Soviet Union did. They're, they're, they're parents. Well, and, that, and there's actually, uh, I read, someone made the case once, uh, I forgot where I read it, but it was that uh, the Soviet, the reason that the socialists, our republic in Afghanistan collapsed. Although they pretty much, they kind of signed a peace deal with the insurgents and they still they didn't control a large part of the country. But things had kind of calmed down. But the thing that really led to its ultimate demise was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the withdrawal of all of that um, funding and you know, material support that came in the wake. Yeah, so like, wasn't there something with the withdrawal? It's like that the commanding general or whatever in Afghanistan like walked across that last bridge, like just because he's like 
Yeah, I'm the last guy out. They yeah. wanted to take they wanted to take pictures of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he had he had been flown back in the night before after leaving <laughs> with one column to come walk across the bridge again. Then I think he went back in like later. It's not like he left for good. Like the, yeah. the Soviets still had military trainers and personnel there. They just weren't fighting anymore. Yeah, it's it's yeah very much the war kept going on. So, what happened after the withdrawal? Of- Soviet troops, or, or do, do we, I mean, do we want? To, I mean, we already kind of covered why they left. Any last comments on that? Well, yeah. national fatigue. You know, no clear successes. Even though, I mean, you have to face facts. They fought. The Soviet army fought as well as could possibly be expected. They won every battle, engagement, whatever you want to call it. Um, but eventually, political, you know, the funding dried up. The Soviet army, the war weariness uh, with very little tangible results. Um, you get a, in, in addition to the um, assumption of power of Gorbachev and his more sort of softer foreign policy than what Brezhnev put into place in the early 80s, um, that kind of led to a general, you know, sort of a phased withdrawal, but a withdrawal still. Yeah, it's, it's hard to fight the home team. Yeah, it is. Especially in Afghanistan, it's hilly. Putting it lightly, but um, do you want to talk about the implications? Because uh, that war has uh, impacted uh, the world significantly. Moving on past that, yeah, you could argue that it hasn't fully ended. <laughs> it's. I mean, the country. That. The country's never been at peace since then. So. So one of the one of the things that we really not talked about that much was the Afghan Arabs. Uh, which is what they called the, these Arabs and others who came from across the uh, Islamic world to fight in the jihad against the atheist Soviets. The foreign um, fighters. Yeah, foreign fighters. And, you know, they called them the Afghan Arabs because they many of them, including bin Laden, Zawahiri, uh, people from Algeria, Libya, Tunisia, Pakistan, Pakistan to some extent, um, they would go back to where they came from and start and take this jihadist ideology to the more local populations. You end up with a low-level insurgency in Egypt, a civil war uh, in Algeria, uh, terrorism in Libya, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have it. September the, 11th. Yeah. Yeah. September 11th. Whereas before that, before that, you didn't really have widespread Islamist jihadist violence. I mean, it was around, but it wasn't um, the global force that it, it became. Well, I think it's a lot of learning. Well, I think I don't even think it was the learning so much as it it brought these different people. So it really was the catalyst because it brought all of these different people together established kind of like a mainline jihadist ideology that didn't exist before and gave them this very powerful symbolic win, even if the Afghan Arabs, these Arabs fighting there, played very minimal role in fighting the yeah. Soviets. Yeah. They, they, like the, they were considered the Afghans, liabilities by the Afghans, right? Yeah, the they, Afghans. They were jokes. Yeah. yeah. And for the record, the U.S. was not funding them and just giving them weapons. Yeah. No, Maybe we should, Yeah, that's a, a popular myth that the U.S. funded the Taliban, so. <laughs> which, which is another story, because the Taliban wasn't founded till 
well after this. Uh, well, after the Soviets have patrolled and the U.S. Yeah, stopped giving funding. The Taliban was founded in 1994, which was three-ish years after the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, but so one of the results is while a lot of these uh, warlords that had been leading the insurgency uh, initially established kind of a deal to jointly govern, uh, that very quickly fell apart because each one wanted his piece of the pie. Um, and uh, who is it? Hakamatiar, I think, was siege- besieging the, uh, the capital, Kabul. Uh, and then there's just chaos. All these warlords are running, you know, their own little fiefdoms. And in late, you know, the mid-90s, the Taliban rolls in from uh, the madrasas in Pakistan. It's this new, you know, very hardline movement. Uh, Young, yeah, they have a lot of energy. Um, They're ready to fight. And they quickly sweep aside a lot of these warlords um, and push them into either exile or kill a couple of them, including uh, the former president of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. Who at that point was essentially just a prisoner in his own home, but the Taliban came in and just killed him. Uh, and, and they established, you know, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, uh, shelters bin Laden later. Which, which, was, which wasn't which was the entire control, because, like, uh, Massoud had his own... Like, Northern, the Northern Alliance had a whole yeah, region he, in the north. He split with them pretty early on, but he was getting steadily pushed back, yeah. uh, pushed up, up until... You know, September 9th, 2001, when he gets blown up by a fake TV crew. Yeah, what um, a convenient thing, right before 9-11. Right before 9-11, yeah. It was literally the guy who could have come in with... Instead, we used Hamid Karza, Kar, Karzai. Um, yeah, which was... Who was in exile and had no credibility. <laughs> yeah, we made a lot of decisions. Yeah, well... Uh, I mean, yeah. But I think... Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> The 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 Afghans of any Afghan born after the 1970s has only known war, only known civil unrest and strife, because that's the way the country has been now for going on 40 plus years, more than 40 yeah. years now. Um, and this, like, obviously the Soviets didn't cause the start of it, but this this war that, you know, this great atheist superpower more or less lost um, became this catalyzing uh, uh, symbol for what became the global jihadist movement. Um, It was this, oh, look how they retreated. Um, We, you know, under, you know, our jihadist principles and our true religion, we defeated this superpower and now we'll defeat the West and the U S and that ultimately, you know, follow the breadcrumbs and you end up at nine 11. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, the Soviets are basically like, well, we're done. We're, this is annoying. We're done. But, uh, we're out of time. That was almost still Thanks guys. Thank you. Thank you.